Okay, so tonight uh, I'm going to talk about, yeah, why do we support Israel? <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can meet together and pray that you'll guide and bless the speaking now and help us, Lord, to learn something from you and to learn something not just about the Bible but also about what's happening around us today and particularly what's happening in the Middle East relating to Israel. Okay, so after the Gaza war, should we still support Israel? Somebody asked me this question, saying, seeing all these terrible images on the news of ruined buildings, children star, children in great need. Uh, it's all Israel's fault, so should we stop supporting Israel? Um, I don't think we should, but we're going to have a look at that question. And I was thinking also that a lot of Jewish people feel that they're very much alone remember some time ago we went to a demonstration which was, uh, there was an anti-Israel demonstration which had thousands of people and we went along with a few Christians and we had some banners uh, and we stood on the side of the road and we said, we, we Christians are with you, Israel, we Christians are with you, you are not alone. And the Jewish man came along and he said, that's nice but not quite alone because there's only about 10 of you and there's about 20,000 of the others. And that's, I think, how a lot of Jewish people see it today and perhaps how it is in many ways, that Israel is pretty much uh, a minority concern. And we're seeing that the world is turning increasingly against Israel. So three questions I'm going to put to you, um, which we're going to try and answer tonight. With the world turning against Israel, should we as Christians continue to support Israel? Second question, does Israel have a right to exist? biblically and historically. And third question, are we heading for the time of Jacob's trouble, which is prophesied in the Bible? The time of Jacob's trouble is actually prophesied in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30. So I'm going to read some verses from Jeremiah, just comment very briefly on them, and then we'll go back to them at the end of the talk to see how they are relevant to this subject. Jeremiah, chapter 30. Uh, Structure of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30 and 31, are a kind of separate entity in which Jeremiah is speaking not just about the coming captivity of the Jewish people in Babylon, but he's looking beyond that to an event which he says is going to happen uh, in the end of days. In fact, if we go to verse 24 of chapter 30, it says, In the latter days you will consider it. Hebrew, it's Be'acharit ha'yamim tipponenu bach. Be'acharit ha'yamim is the phrase which is used in the Hebrew Bible for the days uh, at the end of days, which are leading up to the coming of the Messiah, or from the biblical Christian point of view, the coming again of the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's just read the first few verses of Jeremiah 30. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus speaks the Lord God of Israel, saying, Write in a book for yourself all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that will bring back from captivity my people Israel, and Judah, says the Lord, I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Now these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Thus says the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is ever in labor with child. So why do I see every man with his hands on his loins like a woman in labor, and all faces turn pale? Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Which will come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from your neck, and I will burst the bond, your bonds. Foreigners shall no more enslave them, 
but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Therefore do not fear, O my servant David, says the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your seed from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return, have rest and be quiet, and no one shall make him afraid. For I am with you, says the Lord, to save you, though I make a full end of all nations where I have scattered you, yet I will not make a complete end of you, but I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. And if you go down to verse 18, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children shall also be as before and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all those who oppress them. Their nobles shall be among, from among them, them and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause them to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? You shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it, and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. Okay, so here we are in the latter days. Let's consider it. Uh, briefly, this passage speaks about the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel according to a covenant which I made with your, your fathers, in other words, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It also speaks about a time of trouble, a time of unique trouble which is going to come in the latter days, which God will save Israel out of, and he will also correct something which Israel has got wrong and will bring them into the new covenant, which will replace the covenant with Moses. I'm going to deal with this in a little bit more detail at the end of this talk, so I'm going to switch from that now to looking at what's happening in the world at the present time and see how the two come together. I'm sure you're aware that we live in very difficult times, and particularly in difficult times in relating to Israel and the Middle East. Uh, for now, four months ago, since the Middle East and the world's view of Israel has changed dramatically following the demonically inspired assault on Israel by Hamas terrorists who carried out their unspeakable acts against Jews on October the 7th. Men, women, children and even babies were subject to vile and wicked actions, much of which will not be forgotten by those who bore witness to them. Shockingly, it was not only the barbarous acts which took place, but, they committed, but the fact that they filmed them and uploaded them onto social media and took pride in what they had done. Uh, most people were sickened and horrified by the barbarity shown by Hamas, but many onlookers cheered and celebrated this apparent victory over the Zionist enemy. At first, there was some sympathy for Israel in the Western world, but that has disappeared little by little, uh, and we're seeing more and more a hatred for Israel and Jewish people being whipped up by crowds on demonstrations, also by online abuse, and by some direct intimidation against people who stand up for Israel, which is con very concerning. And particularly, especially the young are being drawn into an alignment and sympathy for Hamas and radical Islamic thinking uh, in the anti-Israel movement. 
And if you are a supporter of Israel and a, whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, you may often find yourself being threatened, vilified, as the world calls for the end of the Jewish state. Now, it's interesting that Trevor spoke this morning about the book of Obadiah, and I recommend you to listen to Trevor's talk. It was very interesting because he showed how in Obadiah you have uh, Edom, which represents the house of Esau, gloating over the trouble of Jacob and trying to cut off their escape route and handing them over to their enemies. And he said that's very much like what's happening today as the world is gloating against Israel, trying to cut off their escape route and handing them over to their enemies. I really want to speak on that theme tonight with a slightly different perspective. But uh, I say if you have uh, internet, then do listen to what Trevor Stewart Sweet said at the morning service this morning. It's very good. So the first question is, how do we stand with Israel? Now, four months after October the 7th, after Israel's invasion of Gaza has been going on, and we're seeing images on the television of tremendous suffering uh, from the Arabs living in Gaza. Also, of course, it is a trauma to Israel. Uh, in Israel today, which you don't see very much of, there are people who are in fear of what's coming. Uh, the trauma of October the 7th has gone very deeply into the minds of Jewish people in Israel, and they have an idea that if this is what they do on one occasion, what would happen if they managed to overrun the whole of Israel? Is this is what they would do. Uh, children today are frightened. Heard of children going up to their parents and saying, will they come for me? Please look after me and, don't, and actually cling on to their parents because they're afraid of what might happen. Uh, 200,000 Israelis are now out of their homes, living in hotels because they're in areas in the north or in the south which are subject to uh, attacks from either Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in the south. Because uh, Israel's army is a reservist army, a lot of people have been taken out of their normal jobs, so they're not able to do their normal jobs, so the economy is suffering. Um, agriculture has suffered with a lack of people to pick the fruit. Um, the tourist industry is down to zero. Obviously, it's not the main time to go to Israel, but tourism, I guess, for the foreseeable future, will not be a possibility for the most part. And people are in shock. Definitely a time of trouble. And it affects all of Israel. And I received a letter from a Jewish believer called Hannah Haustein. She's a Messianic believer in Yeshua, living in Israel, which I felt was quite a heartfelt cry for the situation. So I'm going to read it to you now. Uh, dear friends, on the human level, we experience that as this war seems to turn into a war of attrition, a sense of fatigue due to the unrelenting tension is setting in, as well as a sense of hopelessness when we look at the apparently insoluble issues we face. Just to mention a few for your prayerful concern, Israel has to decide whether to make a deal with Hamas according to their impossible conditions for releasing the hostages, whether we should have an all-out war on our northern front with Hezbollah, and how to orchestrate the governance of Gaza when the war is over. Now I better understand David's cry in several psalms. For example, Psalm 25, verse 15, for the Lord to release him from the snare which has been set for him. There are several of the snares that we are caught in at the moment. All man's advice really doesn't give us answers. Our government is at a loss and appears indecisive about all these issues. The only thing that remains is turning to God, as David said in Psalm 25, my eyes are ever on the Lord, for only he will release my feet from the snare. Besides our internal pressures, there are also external ones. The demand for a two-state solution is the, in essence, 
opening the door for the destruction of the Jewish state, simply cushioned in humanistic language of the West, expressed in noble terms of human rights, two states for two peoples. However, people seemed blind to the fact that turning Samaria and Judea, that's the West Bank, into a Palestinian state simply creates another Gaza Strip border problem in the heartland of Israel, since the Palestinian Authority still calls for the destruction of Israel. Both tunnels and weapons depots are already set up in Jenin, Shechem and Nablus and other Sumerian towns, simulating the Hamas infrastructure in Gaza. Only now we'll be much more vulnerable because this is central Israel and every city can be easily reached with rockets from such a state. And this is demanded by our friends and allies, the United States, the UK and the EU. However, from a spiritual viewpoint, we can also clearly see that Israel is in the refiner's fire at this moment. While we greatly appreciate the support and prayerful undergirding we receive from faithful believers in the nations, we also understand that the Lord is dealing with us. He needs to burn away the dross that has accumulated over years, such as selfish political ambitions, unnecessary abortions, worship of Moloch, disunity of baseless hatred causing factions in the nations, to name a few increased atheism and idolatry. As horrific as the slaughter of 7th of October was, one cannot overlook the similarity to a biblical event described in Exodus 32, the worship of the golden calf while Moses was convening with God on Mount Sinai. At the Nova Music Festival, where over 300 young people were killed or taken hostage, more than 3,000 young Israelis were dancing in front of a large statue of some say Buddha, others say Shiva, which are heathen gods. Promiscuity and drug use was rampant. The Lord reacted as he did thousands of years ago in his wrath, allowing the Hamas disaster to take place. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. The solution starts with repentance and return to God. National Day of Prayer has been held in Israel at the Western Wall, and there are clear signs of Israelis turning to the Lord more than ever. The believers are planning a worldwide repentance and prayer day from the 25th to the 27th of February. That's actually starting next Sunday. Our intercession will include repentance from individual sin on the first day, repentance for the sin of the body of Messiah on the second day, and repentance on behalf of Israel on the third day. The scripture that comes to mind is from Hosea chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days he will revive us, on the third day he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Another well-known verse is the clear call for restoration in 2 Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. I think you agree, perhaps from the nodding of heads, that that is a good prayer letter and some good advice and uh, it occurred to me that as the uh, Worldwide Repentance and Prayer Day starts on the 25th of February, which is next Sunday, we may have a time of prayer here this afternoon, um, next Sunday afternoon, extra to the uh, meeting. So, uh, see again a few people nodding their heads. So, if you're interested, we could have a prayer meeting here from about four o'clock onwards before the meeting uh, on Sunday evening next week. So, we see a lot of Israelis are feeling the, the need to turn to God, uh, which is good. And we see there's also a great need for a repentance in the land of Israel. 
and also in the way which people are treating this whole situation. Looking at it from the other side, we see a huge amount of trauma taking place in, in Gaza. And I think that no matter how much we feel for Israel, we can't ignore the fact that Arabs, Palestinians are suffering horribly in this war. War is horrible. And whenever there's a war, the people suffer. And we see dead people, destroyed buildings, refugees in tents, in cold, wet weather, hungry, and a growing humanitarian crisis. And in the midst of this, there is a call for a ceasefire to stop the fighting so that these needs can be met. Uh, here's a copy of a call for ceasefire. So we've um, witnessed unfathomable death and destruction in the Gaza Strip and Israel. Thousands of people have been killed, injured, displaced, and nearly 200 remain hostage, including children and the elderly. In Gaza, the UN has said that water, food, fuel, medical supplies, even body bags are running out due to the siege. The UN warned that people, particularly young children, will soon start dying of severe dehydration. Neighborhoods have been destroyed and turned into complete rubble. Palestinians in search of safety have nowhere to go. Many of those who relocated from northern Gaza to the south after the relocation order by the Israeli army uh, <coughs> have nowhere to flee uh, once they have arrived in southern Gaza and are now being told to move on. The events have led to the precipice of a humanitarian catastrophe and the world can no longer wait to act. It's our collective responsibility. Uh, as friends of Israel, we can't deny that that's happening. Uh, we have to ask the question, why is it happening? And how do we respond to it? Who's responsible for the situation? Uh, should Israel be pushed into a ceasefire now? And there is a moral dilemma which we face. We can't uh, get away from it. If we support Israel, are we responsible for this? And you'll see some of the people who are saying that you're complicit in genocide if you stand with Israel. Uh, obviously, I don't want to be complicit in genocide, and I'm sure you don't. Uh, God loves everybody, Jewish, Arab, whoever they are. But you have to ask the question, who is responsible for this situation? Uh, I know Israel, I know Israelis, I know Jewish people. I've never met one who actually wants to get involved in a war and kill people. They want to have, live in peace with their neighbors. They didn't start this war. Uh, Israel is a victim continually of hatred and terror threats from all sides. And behind all of this, you can see enemies of Israel who want to wipe them out whether it's Hamas, Hezbollah, Iran, who is responsible for much of the uh, bloodshed and terror which is taking place in the Middle East by supplying weapons and missiles and encouragement to violent terrorists who have nothing to offer to the world except misery, hatred, and destruction. And we have people even calling for massacres and the end of Israel, uh, attacks on Jewish people worldwide. And of course, if you're Jewish, you do take these threats seriously. Uh, Jewish people down through the ages have been persecuted relentlessly by other forces, of, unfortunately some of them claiming to be Christian, and they know that if people say they want to kill them and wipe them out, probably that's what they want to do. You've got experience of crusades, inquisitions, pogroms in Russia, and of course the most terrible one of all, the Nazi Holocaust, which resulted in the death of six million Jewish people. And in all of those situations which I've mentioned in the diaspora, Jewish people have actually been victims, defenseless victims of cruel and evil people without having an opportunity basically to fight back and defend themselves. Having got their own country now in Israel, they do have an army 
and they do have an opportunity to defend themselves. They have the Israeli Defense Force. And notice it's called the Israeli Defense Force. Israel. Purpose is to defend Israel, not to attack uh, anybody. And Jewish people in Israel feel that they need a defense force because they have enemies who want to destroy them. And so when you hear people saying that Israel is responsible for genocide, it's not. Israel is responsible for the protection of its own country. And unfortunately, there are people who are out there who want to destroy Israel and destroy the Jewish people, and Israel has a right to defend itself from them. Now, what we're seeing happening is that it's also already hitting here in the West and in Jewish neighborhoods like this one. There's the Daily Mail here. Explosion of hatred against the Jews in Britain. Uh, article says that British Jews have suffered an explosion of hatred in the wake of the Hamas terror attack. Occurs in schools, universities, workplaces, on the streets, and all over social media. Number of anti-Semitic incidents has jumped by 147% to record levels, with a massive surge in the wake of the Hamas atrocities on October the 7th. The article also notices actually that the anti-Semitism began immediately after October the 7th, before Israel had gone into Gaza. They were starting to attack Jewish people. Uh, so that tells you that it wasn't a response to what Israel's done in Gaza. It was, it was just uh, a rejoicing in the fact that Israel had been attacked and there were people going out on the streets. You've seen them week after week calling for the destruction of Israel. Incidentally, the highest number of violent incidents uh, against Jews is in this borough, the Barnet. I guess that's because it's got the highest number of Jews, but the fact is that we are in perhaps almost the epicenter of the anti-Semitism which is taking place in our country. It's also taking place very much in the universities. Uh, here you've got the article from the Jewish Chronicle, uh, Government Acts After Campus Death Threats. Um, uh, the Jewish Chronicle has uncovered shocking new levels of aggression towards Jewish students, including death and rape threats that have forced them to meet under police protection. Last week, two days before it emerged, that Leeds University Jewish chaplain had gone into hiding on police advice because pro-Palestinian protesters were heard to call for Zionists to burn. Uh, one Jewish student at Brunel University did not want to be named said a Palestinian woman told her, I'm an extremist, I'm proud of it, I think your people shouldn't be alive. And you've got plenty other examples in this article about how Jewish people are being oppressed <coughs> in every walk of life, particularly in universities, in the education system, and just how the universities themselves are not taking action to stamp out anti-Semitism because a lot of them are actually even perpetuating it. It's happening even more in America. And we're seeing this surge of anti-Semitism taking place. And intimidation as well. Uh, our local MP, a man called Mike Freer, uh, is a conservative MP for uh, Golders Green and Finchley. Uh, he's made a stand for Israel, and he's now going to retire from politics at the end of this year because he's had enough of the death threats, the anti-Semitism anti and the violence being portrayed against him. Uh, just last week, Tobias Elwood, who's another MP, lives in the south coast, I think it's Bournemouth area, uh, who's actually quite critical of Israel, but he didn't vote for the ceasefire motion, and his house was surrounded by a mob calling him 
complicit in genocide because he did not support the motion calling for ceasefire in Gaza. And all of this is going to intimidate people so that if you want to stand publicly for Israel, you may fear for your life even. Uh, so it's becoming uh, a real threat to our democracy. And you're seeing people who are motivated either by extreme Islam or some extreme leftist views who are really taking to, uh, not just to the streets, not just to social media, but actually to making death threats to people who disagree with them. And Christians also um, had an email from somebody who said that he feels ostracized from his fellowship because he's stood up for Israel and asked to pray for Israel. And he feels that that's not acceptable in the fellowship he goes to, and so he's questioning whether he continued to go to it. Uh, maybe there are a few people listening to this who've had a similar experience. I don't know. But it seems that there's, going, there's an increasing negativity towards Israel or, or an indifference towards Israel. And if you stand for Israel, then you don't find yourself very popular. Uh, so it's a kind of sign of the growing anti-Semitism. And you have this genocide accusation which has come from South Africa at the International Court of Justice, uh, which the implication is that those who stand for Israel are complicit in genocide. So, which really hits us because obviously we as Christians want to love God and love everybody. Uh, we see value in every person, no matter where they come from, and a need for every person to hear the gospel and to be saved through faith in Jesus. We don't support mass deaths. We don't support genocide. Uh, we do support Israel's right to exist, though. And that raises a question, is this a just war or is it Genocide. And a lot of people are saying, well, we should drop support for Israel. Shouldn't support Israel anymore. The problem is, if we do su stop supporting Israel, in effect, we're going to end up supporting Hamas. Because in the end, if you're not supporting Israel, then you're supporting the other side. Sorry, that's a bit black and white, but it ends up like that. Uh, because Israel exists, the Islamic movement wants to destroy it. And Hamas has said very clearly, in fact, it's part of their charter, it says Israel will exist until the Islamic movement will destroy it. And it's part of their charter to remove Israel, not just from the river to the sea. Uh, they've also said to remove Israel from Rosh Anikra to Elat, which, if you know the geography, is from the border of Lebanon right down to the southernmost port of part of Israel. So they want the complete extermination of Israel, the end of the Jewish state, and to replace it with an Arab Muslim state in which it won't be from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. It from be from the river to the sea, Palestine will be an uh, Islamic slave state in which they'll kill each other after they've killed all the Jews. I'm afraid to say that. That's how it seems to work in Lebanon, in Syria, and in some of the countries where this Islamic fundamentalist system takes over. So to prevent this, Israel has to actually take action. Uh, if someone's telling you you want to kill you, uh, do you just say, well, go ahead and kill me and turn the other cheek? Or do you take some action to try to defend yourself? On a national level, Israel does have the right to defend itself. And I think that we would say that from uh, Christian theology. Uh, Jesus said about turning the other cheek and loving your enemies, but he didn't say that you have to lay down yourself and let them walk over you and kill you. Uh, so we do have the right as Christians and as to support Israel in defending themselves against those who want to kill them and destroy them. And Israel is trying to do it with the minimum of suffering for the 
uh, civilian population. Israel has a purpose, a purpose in the present time, which is to remove, break the power of Hamas and the terrorists. Uh, they want to destroy the tunnels and the military infrastructure in Gaza. They want to prevent another terrorist attack like the one which happened. And they want also the release of the hostages. And they want to maintain a presence in Gaza to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Also, they want to maintain a presence in the West Bank to control the security situation there. Now, when you come to Gaza, this actually includes control of the border with Egypt. Now, without getting too political, this is something which is not very much spoken of. Uh, one of the problems which is Israel has with Gaza is that you have most of the border is with Israel itself, but there is a short border with Israel, with Egypt. Under the border with Egypt, they have built, I think, about six tunnels. Through those tunnels, they smuggle contraband into Gaza, which makes a lot of money for the Egyptian army. And so the Egyptian army is quite nervous about Israel going into that part and shutting down the tunnels. Through those tunnels also comes the munitions, which are used to build up the rockets and even to create the rockets inside Gaza. Uh, so Israel has to take control of that border if it's going to, to uh, defend itself, which means it comes into contact with, Israel, with Egypt, which is supposed to be at peace with Israel. Uh, Egypt is doing very little or nothing actually to stop this, and you could say that Israel, Egypt is pretty complicit in the situation by not closing down those tunnels, which presumably they could do if they wanted to. They've got an army, they could just send it there and close down all the tunnels. They don't. Now, ultimately, the responsibility for all this misery which is taking place in the Middle East is with Iran and the terrorists. Iran supplying Hezbollah, supplying Hamas, supplying the Houthis, supplying its groups in Iraq uh, with missiles, all of which are aimed at Israel, and all of which are also bringing oppression to the countries themselves. So one of the reasons why Lebanon is such a dreadful place to live in now, where it once it was one of the more democratic places, is because of the Islamic destruction of that country. Likewise, Syria. And you see that this Islamic spirit which has taken over has brought misery to most of the Middle East and to parts of Africa. Uh, just as an aside, how many demonstrations have you seen about what's happening in Sudan at the moment, in London? None. There are about five million people displaced from their homes. There are about, uh, most of Khartoum has been destroyed. Uh, the uh, health service is ruined in Khartoum because of an inter-fight between different groups in, uh, in Sudan, both of which are Muslims fighting each other and which are also fighting the uh, Arab, Arabs are fighting the African peoples in Darfur. How many people demonstrate against it? Nobody. How many people demonstrated about the Russians and the uh, Assad's forces bombing Aleppo and re reducing that to ruin in Syria? Nobody. It's only if Jews do it that it's news and it's worth demonstrating about. And there's a whole lot of hypocrisy in the, in the way people see these things. Anyway, as I say, Iran is responsible for most of the trouble there. And one of the things which some people are looking for is, will America move in and try to change the regime in Iran? I think it's unlikely, but it's all possible. And really changing the regime in Iran is the key to changing the whole dynamic in the Middle East. But I fear that it's not going to happen in the not-too-distant future. 
say also that all the Iranians I've met here all would like to see a change in their regime. I haven't met one who reports it. Now, coming back to the present situation, the other point which is relevant is the reaction of the West. What is our government, what's particularly the American government aiming for, and the UK government saying pretty much the same. The thing which they're saying is that the solution is for a Palestinian state to be set up, and they're saying now without preconditions. In other words, uh, if I get the details right here, we have a peace plan being pushed by the United States and several Arab states that would include the recognition of a Palestinian state. The plan calls for the withdrawal of many, if not all, settler communities on the West Bank, Palestinian capital in East Jerusalem, the reconstruction of Gaza and security and governance arrangements for a combined West Bank and Gaza. Now, a lot of people say that's fair. It's, you know, just divide the land up between the Jews and the Arabs and they can have their little bit and the Jews can have their bit and they can live in peace together. If it was as simple as that, I'd say, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Problem is, it's not as simple as that. And what they're saying now is that they're going to do it without agreement from Israel and the Palestinian authorities first. They're going to recognize it more or less straight away. Now, the premium before was that Israel has to make a formal agreement with the Palestinian Authority before they can have a Palestinian state. And they have to make agreements which would include political reform of the Palestinian Authority because the Palestinian Authority is very corrupt and it's also basically uh, aimed at destroying Israel uh, from its propaganda point of view. And they have to make security agreements for both Israel and the Palestinians. An MK, who's a member of the Knesset, called Gideon Saar, who's not part of Netanyahu's government, he says the plan will not only resol not resolve the conflict, but will make it intractable. Palestinians will receive, receive state recognition without paying the price of compromise. They will continue to conflict from an updated position that will harm Israel's right to self-defense. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has said it's clear he is opposed to a Palestinian state. Israel will maintain security control over the Gaza Strip once the war ends. 1,400 murdered on October the 7th, and the world wants to give them a state. It won't happen. If you follow that through, it means that there's going to be a conflict between Israel now and the United States, United Kingdom, European Union, in other words, the rest of the world, at which point Israel does remain alone. And that's the likely outcome of the present situation. That happens then Israel is alone and Israel is really up against a formidable enemy which is still coming to destroy it. So do we have a, should we still stand with Israel? Yes, I think we should. And we, I believe that God, according to the Bible, is going to intervene in this situation. But I'm trying to tell you how serious it is and how Israel is really up against uh, forces which ultimately want not just to have a two-state solution but a one-state solution in which Israel is not there at all. And if it's true that the Bible says that there's going to be a Jewish state, a state of Israel, in the last days, then that is relevant to us. So let's move on and ask the question, does Israel have a right to exist biblically and historically? Yes, yes, okay. I know I'm preaching to the converted here, but we are going to try and get this message out, so we hope to reach it to people who are having different views. So let's have a look at it. First of all, 
at the time of Jesus at the New Testament, we see that the territory of Israel or Judea, Samaria, Galilee, was under Roman occupation. It was under Roman occupation, but the Jewish people were still in control of the temple. They were still able to practice their religious and social life in the land, as you read recorded in the New Testament. We read that Jesus actually gave a prophecy before he died and rose from the dead, in which he said that there was going to come a fall of Jerusalem and a subsequent dispersion of the Jewish people from the land. And he related this to his, the non-recognition of him as the Messiah. Uh, so let's have a look at a couple of these prophecies. Uh, Matthew 24, when they were looking at the temple building, Jesus said, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, do not see all these things. Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Okay, so Jesus prophesied the coming destruction of the temple, which took place 40 years later uh, in the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. Not one stone is left standing on the temple. It's all been thrown down to the valley below. You can actually go to Jerusalem now and see some of the stones which were thrown down to the valley below, but you won't find any, uh, anything standing on the temple mount of the old Jewish temple. Luke chapter 19, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the day we call Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry, he stopped halfway down the Mount of Olives and he looked over the city of Jerusalem and he said, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, there's a direct prophecy of the event which is going to take place 40 years later when the, the Jews would revolt against the Romans uh, and after four years the Romans would eventually crack down on the revolt, besiege Jerusalem and end up uh, surrounding Jerusalem in a siege and then destroying the city and burning the city by fire and leaving, as he says, not one stone upon another. A couple of interesting details there. He said, if only you knew the things that make for your peace. The things that make for your peace are knowing Jesus as the Messiah. So something here about the non-recognition of the Messiah was going to lead to these events. He says, these things will happen because you didn't know the time of your visitation time of visitation is Jesus coming as the Messiah. If you don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, this is going to come. If you do recognize Jesus as the Messiah, you're going to be saved in this event. But if you don't, then this destruction is going to come. Okay, I'm going to go through this quickly because there are a whole lot of things I want to say as well. But just notice that there's a connection between the trouble coming and the non-recognition of Jesus as the Messiah, which implies that the Restoration has something to do with recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, he goes on to say in Luke 21, uh, concerning the Jewish people, they will fall by the edge of the sword, be led away captive into all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Uh, prophesying the dispersion of the Jewish people to the nations and Jerusalem being trodden down or ruled by different Gentiles' powers until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. So that little word until is very important, saying that there's going to be some time when this process will be reversed 
and there'll be a restoration of Jerusalem and the land of Israel. Okay, so how did this happen? So 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, you had the Jewish revolt against the Romans. Uh, it was defeated, and the Romans, in revenge, destroyed the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That was the beginning of the Jewish exile, although some Jewish people did remain in the land. Followed by an event a few, uh, some years later in 135 AD, which was the second Jewish revolt under a man called Bar Kokhba, and he rallied the troops of Israel, and again he fought against the Romans, and again he was defeated and crushed by the Romans. After the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Romans decided to rename the country Palestina and to rename Jerusalem Alia Capitolana. Why did they do that? They wanted to de-Judaize the land. So they took the people who were recognized as being one of the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, and called the land after the Philistines, Palestina. When you go to the time of Jesus, you'll find there is no mention of Palestine. You get some old Bibles, they say Palestine in the time of Christ. Well, it's wrong. There's no mention of Palestine anywhere in the New Testament. Mention of Judea, of Samaria, of Galilee, Galil. Mention of the land of Israel, but no mention of Palestine. And it's pretty obvious that Jesus was a Jew, not a Palestinian. And there are people today who are saying that Jesus was a Palestinian, which is nonsense. A, there were no Palestinians at that time, and B, Jesus was very clearly Jewish. Uh, right the way through the scriptures, you see that evidence that Yeshua is Jewish and also the Messiah of Israel. In fact, there's never been a country called Palestine in the region following this. And even more, Palestinian Arabs today are not biblically not related to biblical Philistines. The Philistines actually came from Crete, from, Arab from the Greek areas, and sailed across the Mediterranean and settled on the west coast of uh, what's now Israel and Gaza and had their territory in the Philistines, but they were not Palestinians. So modern Palestinian Arabs have nothing to do with biblical Philistines. The land of Israel should be the land of Israel, not the land of Palestine. Now, Jesus said that Jerusalem's going to be trodden down of the Gentiles. Did that happen? Yeah. At the time of Jesus, as I said, uh, the Romans were actually ruling, uh, but they were not, until AD 70, they were allowing the Jews to continue with their normal life in, in Judea and in Jerusalem. From that time onwards, it was a different story. The Roman rule continued until 324 AD, when the Roman Empire uh, ceded control to the Eastern Roman Empire, which was based in Constantinople or Byzantium, uh, modern Istanbul. Uh, Constantinople was the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire was basically nominally Christian. It was Orthodox Greek Christian. And they ruled over Jerusalem until about 638 AD, after which time it was invaded by the Arab Muslims who established the Arab Muslim Caliphate from 638 until 1099. Uh, during that time, they built the Dome of the Rock Mosque on the Temple Mount and the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount as well. By the way, the Byzantines built the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as their contribution to religious buildings in Jerusalem. All three buildings still there, 
all three buildings significant in modern thinking, particularly the ones on the Temple Mount. Uh, from 1099 to 1187, the Crusaders went in to uh, liberate uh, the holy places from the rule of the uh, infidel Muslims. Uh, they were good Christians, weren't they? No, they weren't. Uh, the Crusaders were terrible. They were motivated by a sort of weird form of Roman Catholicism, which resulted in massacres of first the Jews, and when they finished killing the Jews, they then started killing the Muslims. Which is why, to this day, if you use the word crusade to a Jew or to a Muslim, it's not a good title to use. They were kicked out in 1187 and then became Muslim again under the Egyptians until 1260, under the Muslim Mamluks until 1517, and from 1517 to 1917 under the Ottoman Turks. That's a brief little history of Jerusalem being trodden down of the Gentiles. The Ottoman Turks, by the way, built the walls around Jerusalem. So if you want to go to Jerusalem and walk around the walls, they were built by the Ottoman Turks. Uh, the British took over after they defeating the Turks in the First World War, which led to the British mandate from 1917 to 1948. And after the UN vote in 1947, Resolution 181, caused the division of Palestine into the Jewish and Arab states, which led to the State of Israel, which we have today. And on the 14th of May, 1948, David Ben-Gurion stood in Tel Aviv and proclaimed the State of Israel. Um, it wasn't a State of Israel in the borders which we have today. It was quite a small area, but it was a significant area around Tel Aviv uh, with parts in the Negev and parts in the north around the uh, area of the Galilee. And this was a day of great rejoicing for the Jewish people. Got a description here of what happened on that day. The Jews of Palestine were dancing because they're about to realize what was the most remarkable and inspiring achievements in human history, the people which had been exiled from its homeland for 2,000 years before, which had endured countless pogroms, expulsions, and persecutions, which had refused to relinquish its identity, which had on this country substantially strengthened that identity, people which only a few years before had been the victims of mankind's biggest simple act of mass murder, killing in a third of the world's Jews, that people were returning home as sovereign citizens in their own independent state. So a great day of rejoicing on the 14th of May, 1948, as Ben-Gurion proclaimed Medinat Israel, the state of Israel. Following day, five Arab armies attacked Israel with the intent of destroying the Jewish state at birth. Remarkably, although Israel had very few arms and very little to defend themselves, they did manage to defend themselves and push the Arabs back to the borders which we had before 1967. So Israel was born, and 1967 you had the Six-Day War, in which Israel took control of the area of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, the whole of the city of Jerusalem, the Golan Heights, Sinai, and Gaza. And that's the contentious area which uh, now they want to sort out who should be in control there. 1993, you had the Oslo Accords in which a peace measure was set up in which would lead, they hoped, to some kind of Palestinian self-rule. Uh, actually didn't spell out a state straight away in return for dropping their desire to destroy Israel. Uh, 2005, Israel withdrew totally from the Gaza uh, which effectively became an independent Palestinian state, although not in name. Uh, 
that hasn't worked out too well because Hamas took over and used it then as a base from which to destroy Israel. Very brief history. Of course, you could go into a whole lot more details, but I think it shows you that Israel's existence has been preserved, first of all, by God in the diaspora and then brought back to the land of Israel, that they have a historical connection with the land of Israel, which comes out in the Declaration of Independence, which Ben-Gurion read out on May the 24th. 14th in 1948. Uh, I'm going to read to you a few bits from the Declaration of Independence. Uh, there's Debbie Ben-Gurion in Tel Aviv reading out the historic document. It said, we members of the People's Council, representatives of the Jewish community of Eretz Israel, the Zionist movement are, not, are, here, are here assembled on the day of the termination of the British mandate over Eretz Israel and by virtue of our natural and historic right and on the basis of the resolution of the United Nations General Assembly, hereby declare the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel to be known as the State of Israel. It's a very interesting document to read through. I'm just going to read one or two bits out of it. First, first few words, it says, The land of Israel was the birthplace of the Jewish people. Here their spiritual, religious and political identity was shaped here they first attained to statehood, created cultural values of national and universal significance, and gave to the world the eternal book of books. Uh, so it mentions some connection between the Bible and the state of Israel. It says that Jewish people have lived here ancestrally, and therefore reconnecting themselves to the land is part of a historic process and also a spiritual process uh, connected to the Bible in which the Jewish people gave to the land. Of course, this is connect, contested by the Muslim Arabs who deny this, and it's something which Israel is very keen to affirm. That's why the Israelis are so keen on archaeology, because doing archaeology, they can dig up all kinds of artifacts going back to Bible times which show their connection to the land. And one of the interesting things to do if you go to Israel is to visit some of those archaeological sites, especially around the Temple Mount. Fascinating, but it shows you the Jewish connection to the land going back to the times of the Bible. Um, the declaration goes on to speak about how Jewish people kept their identity in the diaspora and prayed for their return. It speaks about the return beginning in the 19th century in what was called the first Aliyah, or going up to Israel. It says, pioneers made the deserts bloom, revived the Hebrew language, built towns and villages, created a thriving community, controlling its own economy and culture, having, loving peace but knowing how to defend itself, bringing the blessings of progress to all the country's inhabitants aspiring towards independent nationhood. Uh, history shows us that in the 19th century, uh, the area was basically a neglected backwater of the Ottoman Empire, little cultivation of the land and a small population. Uh, trees had been chopped down, it was arid, there were swamps, not much growing there and not much population. American writer called Mark Twain, who wrote Huckleberry Finn, Travelled to Palestine in the 19th century, said it was an arid and desolate land uh, with a glorious past and a miserable present and no future at all. Uh, well, <laughs> he was right about the first two, but not about the third. Uh, Israeli Jewish people went back quite a lot from Russia. Uh, they rebuilt part of the land. They drained the swamps. They planted trees. They made agricultural settlements. 
and they began the Jewish migration to the land. Set up towns like Petach Tikva, Rishon Letzion, and Tel Aviv itself. And they had what they called the Yeshuv, which was a Jewish self-governing entity, beginning of the restoration. And as Jews began to resettle in the land, they also made it possible uh, developing the land. It also became quite attractive for some Arabs to move in there because they could find work and progress there. And actually there's records of immigration of Arabs into the land as a result of Jewish labors in the land. Now that began to change when more Jewish people came in during the British Mandate period and <coughs> there were riots against Jewish immigration which stopped it at the most time when it was needed in the time when the Nazis were coming to power in 1936 and beginning the uh, terrible persecutions of the Jewish people. Goes on to speak about Theodor Herzl, uh, in 19, 18, 1897, who proclaimed the Jewish state in Basel and the right of the Jewish people to a national rebirth, how this was recognized by the British uh, in the Declaration of, in the Balfour Declaration in 1917, and reaffirmed in the mandate of the League of Nations, in particular, which gave international sanction to the historical connection between the Jewish people and Eretz Israel and the right of Jewish people to rebuild their national home. All those events, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, the League of Nations in 1922, and the uh, Basel Declaration in 1897. 1897, by the way, Theodore Herzl stood up in Basel and he said, today I have proclaimed the Jewish state. In five years, possibly in 50 years, certainly there'll be a Jewish state in Palestine. 1897, add 50 years, you get to 1947, which was the date when the UN put forward the motion which brought about the, the uh, establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. Okay, the Arabs said, no, this is not our decision. You've got Europeans here deciding the fate of our part of the world. We don't buy it, which has been, of course, the problem ever since. So you have one group of people saying we have a historic right to be here. The Arabs say, no, you don't. This is our land. We've lived here for centuries. This is our territory. This is Muslim Arab territory, and we don't want another people coming in here. Another thing you have to understand about the Islamic way of thinking is that as far as Islam is concerned, if, one, if a part of the world has once been Islamic, it should remain Islamic until the end of days. Uh, so if their part of the world, which they see the Middle East as all part of the Islamic Dar al-Islam, they call it the House of Islam, Another group of people come in and take control of it. That goes against their view of history, which is why you have this continual Islamic force coming against Israel. Okay, I'll skip through some of this. You have the Holocaust, of course, being part of the issue and leading up to the UN resolution in 1947 when the UN passed a resolution calling for the establishment of a Jewish state in Eretz Israel and what they call the partition of Palestine, which means there'd be a Jewish state and an Arab state side by side. Okay, so the, the, uh, they also said that the, the uh, uh, <coughs> sorry, what Ben-Gurion read out was to ensure freedom of religion Safeguard holy places of all religions, be faithful to the principles of the United Nations, have equal rights for Jews and Arabs living in Israel. 
And the, it concluded with the words, we appeal to the UN to assist the Jewish people in the building up of the state to receive the state of Israel into the committee of nations. In other words, they wanted to be part of the world system, which in a sense they did become through this UN declaration. Uh, things have changed a bit, so the UN is probably more anti-Israel than ever before, but its origins, they were supporting the establishment of the state of Israel. Went on to say the state of Israel is prepared to do its share in a common effort to advance the Middle East. That's also quite interesting. If you're interested in history, uh, 1917, the Balfour Declaration was made, which the British said viewed with favor the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine. Also at that time, the Arab revolt against the Turks took place. You've heard of Lawrence of Arabia. Uh, he led the Arabs to fight against the Turks and he marched up to Damascus. And the idea was to put in power a man called Faisal. Uh, Faisal actually met with Weizmann as an Arab leader, and he said the Arabs should welcome the Jews into the area because they will provide money, they will provide expertise, and they will help to build up this part of the world. Uh, and he, was, he became actually ruler in Iraq because of some machination of the French. He was pushed out of Damascus, but uh, that's another story. But it's interesting that at the beginning, he was the Arab leader who said that we should welcome the Jews into the area. We should help them to build up this area and make it a better place. If Faisal had been heeded by subsequent Arab countries, what would be the difference of the Middle East? And Israel would have liked to have been, done that, and actually does that today. It helps Arab countries. It provides them with medicine, provides them with agriculture and techniques and so on. Uh, just if they'd been able to work with Israel, the whole area could have been totally different. You wouldn't have had all these wars and all this suffering, etc. Okay, and it concludes with this word. This is interesting. Uh, I hope I'm not boring you with this history, but I find it interesting. <laughs> uh, the last words, it says, we appeal to the Jewish people throughout the diaspora to rally around the Jews of Eretz Israel in the task of immigration and building up, up building to stand by them in the great struggle for the realization of the age-old dream, the redemption of Israel. <coughs> so there's some idea of somehow this is going to redeem Israel, bring the Jewish people back to some... Not quite sure what, but some idea of redemption. And it concludes with these words, placing our trust in the rock of Israel, we affix our signatures to this proclamation at the session of the Provisional Council of State on the soil of the homeland in the city of Tel Aviv on this Shabbat Eve, the fifth day of ER 5708, 14th of May, 1948. Placing our trust in the rock of Israel. If you look at some translations of this, which you'll find on the internet, it says, placing our trust in Almighty God. But it doesn't say in Almighty God in the text. It says in Tzur Israel, the rock of Israel. What's the significance of that? Well, there's a big barney before they put this down between the secular and the religious. Uh, the rabbis wanted the inclusion of God in the last section of this document. They wanted to say, placing our trust in the Almighty or in the God of Israel we're in the Almighty and the Redeemer of Israel. But the secularists, particularly a man called Zizling, who was a member of the Mapam group, which if you know, Israel is actually one of the far left uh, political parties in Israel. He objected to any mention of God. And uh, there was a big argument about whether God's name should be put in it. In the end, Rock of Israel was used. 
Tzur Israel. In Deuteronomy, it speaks about our God, the rock, Tzur Israel. And Ben-Gurion said, to try to crush the argument, he said, each one of us in his own way believes in the rock of Israel as he conceives it. You can interpret it either as God or the land of Eretz Israel. But please don't argue about it anymore. Don't put it to a vote. We're just going to put that in and that's it. And it was. That was it. <coughs> and the phrase was accepted without a vote. But that actually is very interesting if you know the subsequent history of Israel. Should God have been mentioned? Yes. Was he mentioned? No. Not directly. And it says that there is this divide between the secular and the religious. Is that still there in Israel today? Absolutely. You have two factions, or more factions actually, you've got many factions in Israel. Uh, I met an Israeli who said he got off the boat in Haifa once uh, at the founding of the state, and he said, he was greeted by somebody who said, Kol Israel Mishpacha Echad. All Israel is one family. Said I spent the rest of my time in Israel finding out that wasn't true. Uh, there are many people fighting against each other. And sadly, the secular and the religious are poles apart in modern Israel. And in modern Israel, you've got the secular bringing in all kinds of things which we actually would not agree with, including gay marriage and all that kind of stuff. Uh, New Age, the occult, abortion, all of this, part of modern Israel. So do we agree with the religious? Actually, no, because the religious are bringing in all the Talmudic and Hasidic stuff, uh, which has its own baggage, which is not in line with the Bible. Interesting, when you look in the Bible, you find that this is actually the third occasion they've tried to establish a state of Israel, first under Moses, when they came in from Egypt. Uh, what happened before they came into Egypt was, before they came into Israel, was that Moses read to them from the Torah, and the Torah became their constitution, if you like. What happened when the second time they were restored after the Babylonian captivity, Ezra got them all together and read from the Torah and that became their constitution on which to build the, state of, the next state of Israel. Third time you have this time and there's no coming together on the Torah. And God allows that because actually God doesn't want them to be either secular or Torah religious. He wants them to find Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah, and to be based on the Messiah. And ultimately there's going to be no peace in Israel until the Messiah returns and sorts all this that stuff out. Okay, so um, I'm going on too long, aren't I? Uh, <laughs> I've got a whole lot more. Perhaps I'll have to do some of it another time. But let's go back to some of the biblical reasons. If you look at the Bible, you see that uh, we do have a case going back to the Bible to say that modern Israel is descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from a covenant which God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay. Genesis chapter 17, God says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and all their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. That's God's word to Abraham. You'll find it repeated to Isaac and to Jacob, and down through the ages it's something which God builds on right through the Hebrew Scriptures. Does tell the Israelites if they're faithful to him and walk in his ways, he's going to protect them and bless them in the land. If they're disobedient, then he'll bring judgment upon them. 
the final judgment will be to be removed from the land, but even if they're removed from the land, they'll be brought back again in God's time. Uh, very briefly, that is the basis upon which we see the establishment of modern Israel, because the prophets do describe a dispersion of the Jewish people, but also a return. Prophecies like Ezekiel chapter 36, which tell us, I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put, take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You'll keep my judgments and do them. Then you'll dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You should be my people. I will be your God. And that's prophetic about the last days, that God's going to bring them back to the land physically, but also going to bring them back to himself spiritually. They're going to be born again of the flesh, born again of the spirit. Anybody here been born again of the spirit? Yeah, that's what happens when you believe in Yeshua, isn't it? But that's part of the process. And Jesus spoke about the fig tree as a sign of the rebirth of Israel, budding of the fig tree. The fig tree speaks about the national life of Israel. So when you see that fig tree budding, then you're going to see the next thing that's going to happen will be the return of the Messiah. So the modern state of Israel, I believe, fits into this. That's why, again, where we have a connection with the Bible. Unfortunately, the Bible also says there are going to be wars and troubles and a time of great trouble before the end of days. Israel's enemies are going to try and wipe them out. Mentioned before about Psalm 83, which says, come, let us uh, remove them from being a nation that the name of Israel be remembered no more. And Israel has to defend itself. That's why Israel has to have an army. Um, Golda Meir once said, what we say here, if the Arabs put down their weapons today, there'll be no more violence. If the Jews put down their weapons today, there'll be no more Israel. Very true. Israel has to defend itself, therefore it has to have Svahaganatle Israel, the Israeli Defense Force. And it's facing a threat, not just from Hamas, also from Hezbollah in the north, from the Islamic world, from all of these people who are facing, who are putting pressure upon Israel, and even upon the Western world, which is going to push for this two-state solution, which puts Israel in some danger for its future. You have Iran against Israel, and there are many who see that there will be an alliance of Israel against Israel coming from the north, including Russia, Iran, Turkey, and allies which will come in the war of Gog and Magog. We're not there yet. We also have passages which speak about a false peace which will come against Israel in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Again, we're not quite there yet, but you can see it's all on the horizon. And I believe that Christians actually need to be informed about this. Actually, Jewish people need to be informed about it as well, because most Jews I know have very little clue about all this stuff being related to the Bible. But we need to be informed about it. And we need to be informed why Israel has to resist the alliance which is seeking its destruction. Also, why Israel has a right to resist the Western alliance seeking to impose a two-state solution upon it. And why Israel should unite in the face of its enemy and unite also with those who believe in Jesus, 
want to stand with them, Christians who stand by Israel. Okay, so I haven't got on to my last question. Um, that'll take me about 10 minutes. Can you stand another 10 minutes? Okay, good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 30. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 gives you this uh, picture, which I said speaks about the last day's scenario. It specifically says it's speaking about something which will happen in the last days. In the latter days, you're going to consider it. It speaks about a return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, according to the covenant which I made with your fathers, fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, things I've just been telling you about. It also speaks about a unique time of trouble which is going to come in the latter days, which God will save Israel out of. And so it says, I'm going to cause them to return to the land I gave to their fathers. They shall possess it. Then in verse 5 it says, We've heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask now and see whether a man is labor, in labor with child. So why do I see a man, every man with his hands on his loins, like a woman in labor? And all faces turn pale. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. If you look at that passage carefully, you've got a number of connections with other passages in the Bible, in both the book of Daniel and also in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 24, and also Paul in 1 Thessalonians, which connect it to the last days of the, before the second coming of Jesus. It speaks about a unique time of trouble unlike any that has been before or ever shall be. What did Jesus say in Matthew 24? He says the last days will be a time of great tribulation uh, unlike any that has been before or ever shall be. Same thing in Daniel chapter 12. Speaks about the travails of a woman in labor. You have that right the way through the scriptures about the last days. Uh, a sign of the events which will lead up to the second coming or the day of the Lord. <coughs> and it also speaks about God's people being saved out of this time of trouble. So in this time of trouble there is a way of salvation, a way of escape. <coughs> Let's move on. I'm not going to go into detail, but I'm just giving you a few things. It says that God is going to deliver particularly his people Israel. He says in verse 9, they're going to serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So who's David their king? Is it a reincarnation of King David? Well, we don't believe in reincarnation. Uh, actually, David could come back in the millennial kingdom as believers in Jesus would come back. I'm not sure about that one. But I believe ultimately David, their king, is speaking about Mashiach ben David, Messiah, son of David, uh, the Messiah, in his second coming form in the person of Jesus. Goes on to tell them that he's going to break the captivity of the nations over Israel. And verse 11, he says, Though I make a full end of all nations where I've scattered you, I will not make a full, complete end of you. But I will correct you in justice, will not let you go altogether unpunished. In other words, this passage is saying God's going to preserve Israel as a people. And one of the remarkable facts of history which you look at both historically and biblically is the fact that the Jews have remained a people despite nearly 2,000 years of dispersion, despite attempts by many people to try to wipe out the Jewish people, to destroy the Jews, yet they have preserved themselves as a people and are now back in the land of Israel. And even though there are people trying to wipe them out in Israel, they still keep going and they still keep having uh, 
the victory and continuing in the land of Israel. And then he says something very significant. End of verse 11, it says, I will correct you in justice and will not let you go altogether unpunished. In other words, in this time of trouble, God is trying to correct something which Israel's got wrong. <clears throat> so the big question is, what has Israel got wrong? Is it his treatment of the Palestinians? Well, I'm sure there are many things which could be improved, actually, in the way it treats the Palestinians. Is it the occupation of the West Bank? Well, actually, there are some aspects of the occupation of the West Bank and the settlers which I don't agree with, but I don't disagree with their right to be there. Is it uh, all the gay stuff which I've just spoken about? Yes, certainly, God wants to correct that. But the fundamental thing which God wants to correct, which is wrong with all of these things, including the practice of Orthodox Judaism, is the recognition of the Messiah. Jesus said these things are going to happen because you didn't recognize the time of your visitation. In other words, all this trouble is going to come to Israel because you didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. If that's the case, what's the answer to Israel's trouble? Recognize Jesus as the Messiah. Quite simple. Uh, if you call on the name of Yeshua, you're going to be saved individually and actually nationally. Zechariah implies they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced, mourn for him as for an only son, and then he's going to come back in power and glory, stand on the Mount of Olives, sort out all this mess, and bring in the Messianic kingdom. So the answer to all this trouble is to believe in Jesus, Yeshua, the Messiah. And in that final restoration, the oppressors are going to be punished, and the governor, according to uh, this passage, is going to come from their midst. The governor, I think, is the Messiah as well. He's going to come back with the government upon his shoulder, as it says in Isaiah chapter 9. He's going to take rule over the nations and bring peace not just to Israel, but to the whole world. He's also going to bring judgment upon the wicked, which is implied also in this passage. So there's going to be a separation between those who are saved and those who are lost. And the way of salvation is through faith in Yeshua, the Messiah. And finally, just a couple of verses from the following chapter. Chapter 31, verse 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, O you nations. Declare it in the hours afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. The scattering of Israel was literal. The gathering and the keeping will also be literal. Who are the nations in the hours afar off? People like you and me. Because the hours are far off just speaks of those countries which are outside of the countries which the Bible knew about. So we could very much qualify as one. But God wants this message to go out, not just to the Jewish people, but also to the nations, that God has scattered Israel, but he's also going to gather them and keep them. And his purpose in keeping them is actually to bring them into the new covenant. We go to the end of Jeremiah chapter 31 speaks about a new covenant which God's going to make, not like the covenant he made with Moses, but a new covenant. <clears throat> and in verse 33 it says, This is the covenant I make with the house of Israel in those days, says the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds, write it on their hearts, I'll be their people, they will be my God. They will be my people. I will be their God, they will be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbour, every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They should all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Jeremiah speaks about a new covenant 
Hebrews chapter 8 quotes this passage in full and says that this is now the covenant which is fulfilled in Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Three things it says is going to happen as a result of this covenant. You're going to know the Lord, you're going to have his law written on your hearts, and your sins are going to be forgiven. Anybody experience that? Come to know the Lord through faith in Yeshua, have his law written on your heart by the Holy Spirit, and have your sins forgiven as you repent and believe the gospel. So in the end, it all comes back to Jesus. And he's the one who's going to bring it all together. How long it's going to be before all this is sorted out, I don't know. But I believe it is going to be sorted out. And in the meantime, God has a purpose for Israel and for the Jewish people. He hasn't finished with the Jews. He still has a purpose for them. He still loves Israel. And he has a purpose to bring all things together, both Jewish and Gentile, in one, in the Messiah. And when Jesus comes back, all of this trouble, all these wars, all this trouble is going to be over. And Jesus is going to reign from Jerusalem and bring peace and justice to the world. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are. And I hope you're ready as well, because to be ready, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to believe in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. Let's just have a word of prayer, then we'll sing our final hymn. So Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved Israel as a nation. Lord, in the midst of all the trouble which we see today, we believe that you are able to work all things for good. And we do pray for the preservation of Israel. We pray for the protection of Israel. And above all, we pray for the salvation of Israel and that many Jewish people in these last days will recognize their need of salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah. Amen.